Hello and welcome to The Sunday Salon, a podcast celebrating brilliant books and the women who write them. My name is Alice Zania Jarvis and each week I chat to an inspiring female author about her work, her career, how she writes, what she reads and everything in between. I'm interested in the stories behind the stories and the joy that books can bring, no matter what genre or style. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts, but for the best experience, I really recommend using the new app Entail, which will allow you to look at exclusive pictures as we talk, click on links, even shop the books featured. It's truly amazing. My guest this week is Candice Carty-Williams, whose debut novel, Queenie, is undoubtedly one of the books of the year, having been the subject of a bidding war and winning praise from Jojo Moyes and Kit Duval. It tells the story of Queenie Jenkins, a 25-year-old Jamaican-British woman living in London who works at a national newspaper where she's constantly forced to compare herself to her white middle-class peers. I love this book. It's funny and youthful and feels so relevant. Reading Candice's writing is like speaking to a friend. It's brilliant. So Candice, welcome. Thank you so much for coming along today. Thank you very much for having me. Let's start with Queenie. How would you describe it and what made you write it? Uh, how would I describe it? So I think, well, I guess describing it is kind of how I came to write it. Um, I worked in publishing since I was 23. I started in publishing when I was 23. And I realised really quickly that I wasn't working on any books that I could see myself in. And I wouldn't just want to see myself in books so I could work well on them. It's more that I just realised that there was no reflection of myself and that was a real issue. Mm. Um, And so I was like, okay, what can I do with this? Um, So I started a short story prize um, and when things weren't coming through quickly enough, I was like, okay, I'm just going to write a novel. Um, (laughs) And so I went away um, to Jojo Moyes' writing retreat. I amazingly uh, won a place on that. And I didn't really have anything planned to write when I was on the way there or even when I sort of applied to go but as soon as I got there I was like I can see this person in my head and she feels fully formed and so I just went with it and it basically was about representing young black women who aren't just an item of exotic desire or the Mm. sassy best friend or someone who is just there for comic relief or someone who's crazy with big hair Uh, because I was really bored of seeing this trope as the only representation that we had Mm. and sort of growing up kind of understanding that this was how we were seen in culture and also finding it hard to put myself into that because I'm not really any of those things. Um, I re- I'm, I'm, I'm like a, an introvert and I'm a huge nerd. And so I was always struggling to find my place and I felt really invisible in society because I was like, there seems to be no one like me. And that mm. was really hard. So it was about redressing that and it was about representation, basically. So there's so much there that I want to follow up mm-hmm. on. Um, Just starting with the representation, uh, something you said, which I think is a really interesting distinction, is that you didn't want to write an issue-based novel. You wanted one that reflected your yours and your friends' experiences. Can you explain the the difference, uh, the difference between those, and and why you felt so strongly about that? Well, an issue novel is not someone's existence, Mm. and that was that. That was it for me, and I think an issue novel suggests something that's occurring, something that's gone on and something that needs to change or be bettered. But this is just someone existing in the world. Mm. And I can't see how that is. It's not, I don't think it's notable. I don't think Queenie is notable. She's not doing anything that 
anyone hasn't done before. She's just living in a Britain that she finds hard. Mm. But that's not an issue, you know? That's just someone who's kind of like, okay, well, I'm just here now and I'm just trying to like go to work and like fall in love and just have a nice boyfriend Mm. and just be happy and like get on with my family, you know? It's really interesting because along the way you do tackle big subjects in the book and as a black woman, she is othered uh, by the people around her. And yet it's almost incidental. It's And it's so much more powerful for that. Uh, was was that deliberate? Absolutely. I mean, there were so many things I wanted to say. And so I guess the first draft of it was just kind of not anecdote, because she's not me. She's way more interesting than I am. And I'm very cautious, so I would never do any of the things that she does. Um, but uh, lots, of, lots of things that I've heard and lots of things that I've seen and lots of experiences that my friends have told me about and, and the stuff we see on social media and the things that people are facing, I was kind of like... I kind of want to get this all in and kind of want people to understand why it's not okay. Mm. Because, you know, you see a lot of people explaining that something's happened and maybe someone at work was like touching their hair repeatedly. Mm. And you might see someone tweet that and then people say, well, what's wrong with that? It's just nice. And it's kind of like, how can I, I guess, take time through narrative to show people that this is actually affecting and touching someone's hair, that's a really quick, small thing for you because Mm. you're interested because it's new and it's different to you but actually this person takes that away and it forms part of their identity and how they see themselves. Mm. And so it was important. So that Black Lives Matter, dating, Mm. family splitting yourself in two, all of those things kind of shape this girl and they send her on a journey that she can't really bear anymore. Mm -hmm. And there's also this, uh, the the way uh, men view her and she she goes on this journey where she's, she's experienced this breakup and it kind of plunges her into this difficult time and she has a lot of sexual partners and they don't always treat her with the greatest respect and so she sort of and she's she's kind of treated badly by them but then also shamed by people around her including uh, the doctor that she visits for having this sex and it's a double bind really can you tell me about that well the sex i think was really important because i think I think you can in life tend to fall into what you're told that you are Mm. and I really wanted to explore this girl who could only see herself how men were seeing her you know she's had this breakup and this person to her he signifies everything he signified family what a good life should be she hasn't come from the most solid background Mm. and so she's trying to be everything that her mum wasn't and she's trying to be the person that her grandparents would think that she is someone who is well-rounded, someone who's integrated nicely. And heartbreak sends you crazy. And I think that heartbreak can make you do things that you wouldn't, I mean, it would. Heartbreak makes you do things you would not otherwise do. Um, And so I thought about how that would fit with a girl who's only seeing herself through the value that she kind of understands that she's worth. As a young woman, I think we all have that. I think young women generally, Mm. we often see ourselves through the lens of a man. I mean, that's the messaging that we're told, like we have Mm. to, who are we looking good for? You know, I think so many of us are learning now to look good for ourselves and our friends and to enjoy that. But so much of this has been, so much of, of women's lives have been looking good and being the best for men. And that takes its toll. That's Mm. really, you know, it's something that we're still trying to unlearn. And I wanted to explore that through her. She's someone who has always seen herself through how a man 
sees her and especially because she's so sexualized because she has big boobs and a big bum and she has all of these exciting curves you know mm. and it's interesting because she doesn't you don't learn about those features through her or through mm. her thoughts or through her narration mm. you learn about it through the remarks other people make towards her whether they're talking about her bum her you know the size of her knickers her, mm. her 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 boobs her hair it's always about these these external people putting these things on her and 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 almost interpreting them for her yeah so it's about again it's is exactly about that lens that she sees herself through she's never she's someone who is not fully formed yet she's 25 and i guess she's still going through the world and understanding how people see her and acting as a result of that mm. and so she doesn't really have the time or the scope or the understanding or the mental capacity yet to be like who am I and what am I I remember when her therapist asks her how she sees herself and she's like well I don't really know and I was really when I read that I was really upset because I was like but mm. I, I know so many girls who are like that mm. I know so many girls who are kind of they are what people tell them they are and there's this sort of element where she's kind of casting around for what where she where she belongs and, mm. and who she is uh, she's got this quite disparate group of friends who are all <laughs> fabulous in their own way but they're all from uh, they're all friends that she's made individually and she's brought them together she's got the areas of London uh, constantly changing there's mm. a scene where she's looking for an old bakery and she she can't find it but she remembers it from her childhood mm. and, and so that's changing she's in between flats she's got she's moving around and that's that sort of changing a landscape that kind of changing uh, soundtrack to your life is something I think so many people will relate mm. to was that a deliberate thing that you uh, sought to explore? Absolutely because I like being tethered. I'm that sort of person. I'm a real homebody. And I know that so many of us, like, we need security. And especially our 20s are really hard. I really struggled in mine because I'd been to nursery. I'd been to reception. I'd been to school. I'd been to college. I'd been to university. And all of these institutions, like, they held me. They told me I had a place there. I had goals. And then as soon as I left, I was like, well, what do I do now? What mm. do I do now? And you kind of just want to be in one place. I guess like you've just kind of stopped moving. And so when you have no direction, the best thing for us would just to be still and to be silent and to understand what we're doing. But actually when the world is changing around you and actually the places she knows is consistent, has changed basically beyond recognition. That again, adds to the fact that she's like, what am I like, who am I in this world? You know? Can I ask you a little bit um, about yourself and your, you, you mentioned there that you had this, um, clear direction had you always wanted to be a writer when you were a child what what was your childhood like I had no understanding of what I wanted to do when I was younger I had a really I had a relatively tumultuous childhood and when I was at school I they said that I had behavioral difficulties but this is because I asked a lot of questions because mm. I didn't really trust a lot of the stuff. So like history, I was kind of like, where? Like, you know, I'm all about representation. Mm -hmm. And like, even when I was younger, I was like, hold on a minute, like the whole world can't have been like made by white people. Mm -hmm. And so I would always speak up and so I was putting all the lower sets. Um, and then I had to really, really prove that I could go to college, so go to sixth form there. Mm -hmm. And then when I got to university, it was kind of, well, as I was on my way to university, when I asked if I could study English, my tutors said, no, you have to apply to media studies because you will not get the grades for English. And so my whole 
sort of intelligence was dictated to me. Mm. Um, and so I had really low self-esteem. I thought I was really stupid. And so there was no way that I was ever gonna be a writer. That is not something that I didn't, even now I have trouble um, accepting the term. So if anyone asks what I do, I say that I work in book marketing. I will never announce myself as a writer. Like maybe when the book comes out, I might be comfortable with it. But I think there is always this young me who can hear people just being like, we can't move you up a set, you can't do English, you're not, you're not smart enough, you'll never get the grade. So as soon as I started writing, it felt very natural. Um, mm. And the editing process, I really enjoyed. There wasn't a huge amount to do. Uh, I loved working with my editors, it was fine. Anything they said, I was like, yeah, okay, I trust you. Like, this is cool, you know what you're doing. Um, and so the technical side of it was okay, but just the psychological side of it, I'm still battling with. That's fascinating. When did you then get the confidence to even start writing? If you're having difficulty accepting yourself as a writer now, and you're such a brilliant writer, um, when did you get the confidence to kind of make that to make that start on on the novel? Because you were working in publishing. I still do. Yes, of course. Um, something must have shifted a little to to make you feel that you could do that? My mentality is basically just like get stuff done. Mm. So I come from a family of incredibly aggressively strong women who get stuff done. And so I was like, again, again, representation, I was like, it's not happening fast enough. I'm going to have to do it. And that was it. And then, you know, there was no guarantee that anything that I wrote would be good enough for anyone to see, you Mm. know? And so like the actual journey of becoming a writer has, I guess, it's made me more confident in a way because mm. I understand now that my work has already been read by many people. Um, but actually knowing that I didn't I didn't realise that I was ever going to be a writer, even when I was writing. And so the confidence is still coming in just because it's, you know, taken a long time to get there. Can you tell me about the um, Jojo Moyes uh, cottage scheme? You mentioned it earlier. Can you explain to anyone listening who's unfamiliar what it is uh, and how it came about? Uh, So I was, I'd followed Jojo for a long time and obviously knew of her writing and knew how amazing she was. And someone retweeted a Facebook post that she'd posted on her sort of like author's Facebook, like one small paragraph that said, I have a cottage and I would like to offer it to somebody who would like to write who doesn't have the means to do that, doesn't have the time to do that. Um, and I was like, well, I work in publishing, so maybe I shouldn't apply. But then at the same time, I come from a family of, you know, my mum is on benefits, my dad isn't around, and I just do not have, I've never had the money to go on holiday, I never had the time to take any break away. Mm. But I knew that I wanted to write, and it kind of came at the time when I was like, I've got to do this thing, representation. Um, and so I applied, and I was like, I do work in publishing, but I don't have the access to a writer's retreat Mm. that um, I'd need to actually do what I want to do. And I didn't hear anything for weeks because I just sent it to like an email address. It was like cottage at (laughs) gmail.com. And um, then in September, I just got an email that was like, hi, um, it's between you and another person. Can I just double check something? And then I was like, okay, yeah, yeah. So I, I sort of answered the question. And then they were like, actually, we're gonna just choose both of you. So come along. And then we arranged it and I went, I drove there, I brought my friend's car and I drove there. Um, and that was my first time on the motorway, but again, determination. Um, and when I got there, I just sat down and said hello to Jojo's husband because he was there and she wasn't. And 
I just started writing and yeah, I went to bed at like three in the morning having written like 8,000 words of this character who was unnamed at the time and who was unnamed for a really long time. Mm. Um, but that was it, it was just like, the stars kind of aligned in that way that I was kind of like, this is what I need to do. And then this opportunity came up. And how has how has juggling uh, finishing the book and the run up to publication been with your your job because you're you're at vintage is that yes. that correct uh, how books. how are you juggling your kind of day job with this so basically i have no time to take any holiday uh, so all of my days for holiday are for talking to great people about the book um, and also doing edits um, but i do all of my actual writing at night time mm. so i can't write in the day so actually it kind of suits me that i can do all my work in the day and then all my writing at night because I guess that's when I feel most inspired anyway. And also there are no distractions because everyone's gone to sleep and Twitter is a bit quieter. So what time do you sit down and start? So I was about midnight. Wow. So sometimes, so at the weekend I will start at midnight and then I'll write until 7am and then I go to sleep. And then in the week, when do you sleep? <laughs> I sleep really bad. So I sleep, I guess I sleep from, a, maybe I go to sleep. My bedtime's at like 2, okay. 2.30, and then I wake up at half seven. Okay. Do you have any strange rituals or funny snacks or anything like that? The only thing I will say I do is that I think maybe I realise it's quite strange. I sit with my headphones on. I listen to grime mm. or UK rap really loudly, like exploding in my ears. And I don't move for hours because I'm just writing. Mm. So I can sit down at midnight and look up and it's like 6 a.m. And I'm like, oh, I should have some water. Just going back to the representation issue, which mm. which first motivated you uh, to do this book. Um, as you mentioned, you launched the uh, Guardian and Fourth Estate BAME Short Story Prize yeah. in 2016, I think it was. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell me about that and where the idea behind that came from? So I basically sat at my desk and I was like, this is really weird. Why aren't we publishing more or any writers of colour? Um, and I'd been lucky enough to work on Chimamanda and Gozidichi's books, but that wasn't enough. And so I was like, can I take a week off work? So I took a week off work and I was like, how can we, what's the problem, what's the problem? And a lot of the people that I know and a lot of writers who are underrepresented, and that is class, disability, sexuality, any, you know, not just um, ethnic background. They don't know what agents are. Mm. They don't know what imprints are. Mm. Um, they don't know about submissions. They don't know what an unsolicited manuscript is. Mm. Um, I didn't know any of these things before I started working in publishing. And I remember when I was younger, I read, um, a book and I was like what who published this I, I want like what what how do I know about how do I understand where this book came from mm. and uh it said seven dials and I was like I googled seven dials and it came up with nothing because you know imprints are so hard to find and so I was like okay so obviously like knowledge is an issue so how about there is how about there's something that means people can just send their stories in mm. and then I basically was just like short stories are great because it means that people can submit something they already have maybe something that's you know, there's something that they can kind of make fully formed in, you know, the, the two months that we're going to give it to them after the announcement. Sorry, the two months that they can write something after the announcement. And so that was it. It was kind of just like taking some time off and being like, what are the barriers 
for people who don't understand the publishing industry mm. and how can they just cut those out. Um, and then the great thing about the prize is that the last announcement especially was in foils, the pri- the winner's announcement and the the prize shortlistees were there and loads of agents were there mm. and editors and so it was actually like a chance for loads of people to meet and to talk and to mm. connect mm. and so it's not about saying okay we're fourth estate we have all of the talent it's kind of about being like okay well here are these writers and their stories mm. take them away if mm. you'd like to and that's the amazing thing and that's the point of it it's about getting these names out there it really is shocking because uh i mean the industry is so pale and male to use a cliche but it really really is it was the bookseller reported that in 2016 fewer than 100 books published in the UK um, were by um, writers of colour mm. um, when did you were you always aware of that deficit was it just self-evident or um, did you did it take a bit of time for you to notice that so in I guess I have always been, I've often been the only black person. Um, and as soon as I got into my office, I realized it was the same story. Mm. And so I was, and I still am the only black person in, in my divisions. And um, you notice it straight away. You just do, because mm. you just don't have anyone who looks like you anywhere mm. nearby. And you feel that that's something that I will always be aware of in any space, mm. just because people, will especially see you when you're different to them. Hmm. Do you think things are improving? Do you feel optimistic? Because th- that you've heard a lot of publishers pledging to change things and you, mm. we've got new imprints such as Dialogue Books mm. uh, run by Charmaine Lovegrove. Mm. Um, do you think things are changing? I think things are moving in a really good direction. Mm. I think that we have to make sure that they're sustainable mm. and I think we have to make sure that the gatekeepers aren't always the same type of person mm. because, you know, the person that signed my book off is still a white man, mm. you know, so it's that. So, you know, it's kind of like, it's great, but I still think that we need to also be in the positions of power. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is something that we should be seeing in time, hopefully. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's great. You know, Charmaine is amazing. She's my god sister. <laughs> she, is, um, she is amazing. She's a tour de force. Um, and so it's an amazing imprint and it's so wonderful that it exists. And I think, you know, the evidence is there that these books have an audience who want to read them and there's an appetite for them and so it's about I guess the industry being more open to it as Mm. well not just having a separate imprint for that. Mm. How did it feel particularly in the light of the the confidence issues that you mentioned how did it feel when your book was subject to a bidding war? It was really overwhelming um, because I didn't expect anything Mm. I expected so even when my agent got in touch with me and said will you come in I told all of my friends that this woman just wants to see me to tell me that I should go and take two years to keep working on it mm. and so when shopping representation to me between then and actually having my book signed is there's this I just I, I can remember it but it feels it just feels like I'm like an episode of something because it, it must be fiction mm. um, and so it was an amazing thing and when she told me <laughs> that the office had come in, she said, I think you should come to the office. I got there and she told me and I just burst into tears. I just, I, and I just cried for about 20 minutes. Mm. It was embarrassing for everyone in the room. <laughs> um, but I think it's just, you know, things like that, they're amazing, but also 
they are so sort of, they, they're, I guess they're hard to be believed, you know, just because if you've had a lifetime of people telling you that you were just categorically not good enough mm. for then someone, my agent, to be like, because I'm not Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, 99 people. No, I think if, you know, if someone says, you know, you're going to be, if someone says, this is good, I like this, that in itself is really surprising. Mm. And I guess it does kind of knock you. Even though it's been an amazing experience and a good thing. And I'm so grateful for everyone who's been kind and open and receptive and all of these great opportunities to talk to different people. Um, it's still really overwhelming just because it's, I guess it's a lifetime of being like, people have just been like, oh, you're subpar. And so, you know, that's that. We're recording this before the book comes out, yes. uh, but it will actually, people will be listening to this and they can buy the book, it'll be out. Yeah. Um, but how are you feeling now in the run up to publication? Are you, what's your emotional state? <laughs> Um, I've, I'm just, I'm really, I'm looking forward to being able to talk about it just because so many people, I mean, this book has been coming for two years mm. uh, because it was signed ages ago, but every, you know, it's like, I guess things have to come out when they come out. Um, and so people, the most, the question I'm asked most is, when is your book coming out? <laughs> and I've been answering it for two years. And so I'm really excited to have people talk to me about it and about mm. the characters because that's they're the conversations that I like the most and people have like a favorite or people are just kind of like I hate this character and I can't believe that character and I get reviewers talking to me about that and that's amazing and mm. so like on a larger scale like I just can't wait to answer everyone's questions um and so and I like talking to people and I like having people's reads of what I've written mm. because that is that's why we write I mean that's why I write because I want to talk about things I want to start a conversation um and so that's what I'm looking forward to but it's just good. I mean, I will always, this imposter syndrome thing is really hard to shake just mm. because I think it always will be. I think there is no cure to it. And I think, you know, confidence is something that you have to kind of nurture. Mm. Um, and that's something that I kind of have to take time on. Because at the moment it's kind of just like, do this thing, do that thing, talk to this person. And so actually taking time out to be like, you're doing all this for a reason because you're a writer. Mm. That's what I've actually got to like sit down and do mm. rather than just be like, oh, it's just luck. Oh, it's just like, a nice thing and also everyone will just realise that like it's a phony, you're a phony but actually I've, I sat down and wrote a book and mm. you know, I put work in uh, I've read that you don't like public speaking is oh. that is that true? and if so, how is how are you how are you coping with the, the promo side of things? Uh, I find I've had to do like courses about like public speaking courses you've done a, you've done a course I've done a course and it, like That's I thought it would just be like stand up and talk to people but it's actually just like let's talk about the psychological reasons that you hate being looked at um, so that was hard but it was also really interesting um, and I'm it's a, it's a really weird thing I had to do the the Hush showcase this week and the weekend before I could not sleep and I cried myself to sleep the night before because I was like, all those people are gonna be looking, it's gonna be awful, you're gonna mess up. And then the whole day I was really terrified and I couldn't eat anything. And then I got there and I was like, oh, are well, you here now? You just got to get on with it. Mm. And so I think that is gonna happen. I think I'm just always gonna be terrified. But then when it's there and it's kind of like, again, it's going back to just being like, you just have to get on with it and do what needs to be done. Yeah. And so when I was in the wings waiting to go on, people kept being like, are you nervous, are you nervous, are you ready? Are you nervous? Oh, that's so unhelpful. I and hate I was, it when people do that. <laughs> and I was just kind of like, well, there's nothing I can do, but if I was, I've yeah. just got to do it. And so 
that is, I think that's just going to happen. I think I just have to remember that, like, as soon as I'm there, I'm probably going to be fine. Yeah. Um, but I do, I do, you know, I do when I'm there, it's okay. Um, and I guess I have stuff to say. And that's, you know, I know this book inside and out and I care about it. I care about the characters. And she sat in my head for such a long time mm. that when anyone asks me a question, it's kind of like, it's a pleasure to answer. Mm. And so it's also like, you know, it's such a positive and it was remind myself that like, not everyone gets this chance to talk to so many people about something that they've created and that they love. Mm. Mm. Can I ask you about the cover? Because yes. it's so beautiful. Am I right in thinking it's coming out in four different yes. colours? Um, it's such a wonderful cover. And I know from talking to other authors that sometimes cover design can be a fairly fraught mm. process. How has it been for you? So the cover started... Um, in America with my American publishers, Simon okay. & Schuster. Uh, so I had dinner with my American editor, Alison Callahan, and um, she said, I shouldn't show you this, I shouldn't show you this, but she's very excitable. So I shouldn't show you this, but we've got something and I think you might like it. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And obviously you're quite nervous because I was like, okay, well, this is going to be like, and also, you know, you can't, I feel really guilty about saying no to things. And mm-hmm. so I was like, ah, how am I going to navigate it if I don't like it? Um, and she said, I think we're just going to sort some things out about the hair. And I was like, oh no, because I remember she'd said, you know, I don't like anyone's like, fa- I don't just want like to put like a black woman on the cover. And I was like, okay, yeah, great. Like we're on the same page. And then she's like, the hair. And I was like, oh no. And then she, on her phone, she showed me this amazing illustration uh, by Jarrell Saunders. And I was so blown away that I was holding... I was holding a cloth napkin and I ripped it in half because I was so over. I just couldn't, I was just so shocked and excited. Um, and she then showed my UK editor who was a bit like, oh God, yeah, all right, you've done it, well done. And then the next thing I heard was, yeah, okay, well, we're working on something in the UK, so it's going to be really good, don't worry about it. And then like, a few months later, they were like, yeah, we're going to go with the American one, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, but they, it, that's an amazing image, and I think whatever you do with it, it's just so gripping, that amazing head. And I just love it because, you know, she is faceless because, you know, Queenie is, again, she's still working out who she is, and I think mm. it would be, I can't imagine, I don't know what her face is. Mm. I think that would be really, really hard. So I think that sort of anonymity of of self, but also being so defined by her hair, you know, I think that's kind of, they've summed it up really well. And that sort of crown is her name. I love that. You mentioned that uh, for a long time she didn't have a name. Um, mm. So why was that and, and what went about, what was the process of choosing the name like? So I think when I wrote, when I wrote it, because, you know, it's first person and people talk to her and when you're talking to her you don't necessarily always say their name and so for a long time I was kind of like okay well not, I think nothing's really coming to me but it's okay because you know it's not like her name isn't central to who she is um, and so when it kind of got to where she actually had to have a name because the book was coming I didn't want her to actually be like completely anonymous um, I cannot honestly I cannot remember what name I put in place for the first one but I think I put a holding name in when I was like okay it's taking shape so it needs to have something and then I went to my nan's house and my mum was there and my mum <laughs> was going to call me Indira when I was born, but she didn't because my aunt just said, no, call her Candice. And my nan said, sorry, and my mum said, yeah, okay, that's, that's fine, that'll do. Um, and so I know that she kind of likes an alternative name. And I said, mum, what would you call a girl if you wanted to give her a name that was nice, but she might not like it because it's a bit extra? And she said, Queenie? 
And I was like, yeah, I think that's right. Mm. And then I kind of, I didn't even have to like go and work it in and see if it worked. I was just like, no, no, it, it fits. It's perfect. It's perfect. Um, and also just, I guess, in the time of black women calling themselves queen and I guess reclaiming that term and reclaiming honor and dignity and I guess just feeling like royalty and just having a strong self-identity again that kind of you know it was perfect mm. but my mum is not like an internet person so she wouldn't know that everyone's being like queen 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 she just it was just in her head serendipitous yeah um we're running out of time sadly oh, no. so I'm I'm gonna have to let you go soon but before I do I've just got two final questions mm-hmm. uh, first of all you're obviously pretty busy at the moment uh, but can I ask what's next for you? What have you got on the horizon that you're excited about? So um, ideally, Queenie will be coming to TV screens. So I'm just working that out, um, so which is really exciting. Um, and yeah, no, I can't say any announcements because I'll get in loads of trouble. Um, but that's good because it's been good to get back in her head. Um, and then I have already handed in the first draft of novel two um and i really enjoyed writing that i really really enjoyed it um so but it's weird jumping in between two worlds uh, it's not a sequel um but i really liked it because it's kind of like if queenie's corgis were given their own book That's and they were friends. different characters yeah sorry if Just queenie's, for anyone who's sorry <laughs> if queenie's really. if queenie's corgis her group of friends uh, were given their own novel and it was actually a lot messier. Um, that's what it would be. So that it was really great. fun to write, but pretty wild. And my final question is uh, something I ask everyone, which is uh, if you could give any aspiring writer or um, even your younger self, perhaps someone who is struggling with the confidence and imposter syndrome that you mentioned, because I think so many people do, mm. uh, one piece of advice. If you give them one piece of advice, what would it be? God, that's really hard. I have like five at hand. Five pieces of advice is fine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> One is um, a minimum. <laughs> I would say, I would say, like your voice is valid. That's the first thing I would say. Yeah. Because for years I didn't realise it was, and I thought that you had to be white, middle class, Oxford educated, moneyed to have anything worth saying, and that is not true. Mm. Um, and also, just write is the second thing. Mm. Just go and sit down and write. Find some time wherever it is, get a notepad. You can write it in the notepad and then type it out later. Like just get some words down. Carry a notebook with you, I would say. Write down Mm -hmm. every single thought you have because I always have like character and plot point thoughts when I'm in the street and I'm like, I'll remember it later and then it's gone. It's completely Mm -hmm. gone. So I would say like, just like jot things down as and when. Um, And also I would say, don't sit in front of a blank page and get anxious about filling it. If you have to start from the middle, do that. Mm. So for loads of chapters, I'd be like, okay, this is what's happening next. Um, I would then be like, oh no, but I don't really understand. How do I start that? Just don't, just like keep it moving. I would say like, just start from wherever you need to start and then you can always go back. And my final bit of advice is, that's, that's four. My final bit of advice is everything can be changed. So do not get het up in the thing that you've written because it might be completely different once it's in its final form. Mm. So just try not to worry. I think basically all of my points are just not worrying about what you're writing mm. and not being too in your head because there's no need. Well, that is fantastic advice and a wonderful note to end on. 
Candice, thank you so much. You've been such a joy to speak to. Uh, And to everyone listening, Queenie is out now. There's a link to buy it in the show notes. I can't recommend it highly enough. So that's it from us. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to The Sunday Salon. Please do share your thoughts about the episode with me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alice Zazania. And more importantly, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate or review it. It really helps other people find it, as well as its position in the charts. So until next week, a thank you and goodbye.